0: Sienna, not to fit, not to pigeonhole you into like a Hollywood trope, but I could totally see you being the post-apocalyptic girl with the welding goggles that's like, oh man, like we need to we need to buckle down and like do some welding and like everyone's like, whoa, she welds. And you're like, Yeah, of course I weld.
1: Before the apocalypse, I saw it coming and I was like, on the side of my neuron growing project, I'm also going to learn to weld. <laughs> Just so that when the apocalypse comes and nobody needs a neuron anymore. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna be able to weld, and that's gonna be my other
0: niche. Okay, so you're uh, you're definitely on my zombie apocalypse strat team. Hello and welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the science podcast where we take robust scientific fields and over 100 years of research and distill it down into a 60-minute podcast. My name is Alistair and I'm a PhD candidate in chemistry at Queen's University.
1: My name is Sienna and I'm a PhD candidate in neuroscience at McGill University.
2: And my name is Beth, I'm a PhD student at Sapienza University of Rome studying particle physics.
0: And we are the Ph.D. 3. To
1: me! (laughs) I gotta say, I really enjoyed your tagline this time, because I feel like it's exactly true. We take hundreds of years of research and are like, here's what it all means for us. And all of those hundreds of years of research and people who did them listen to our podcast and are like rolling their eyes at us. Because (laughs) (laughs) we summarize their research in like two words. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Doing research for this podcast, I came across a whole bunch of different fields that I have no like qualifications to talk about, but I stuck stuff in there anyway because I was like, this is cool. This is a neat word. Like, I'm going to talk about this. So disclaimer, I know nothing about any of this stuff. I know a little bit about some of this stuff, <laughs> but I know credit goes to, I and I have my sources and I have credit to those people who did all of these years of research. At the
2: end of the day... That's what research is for, is to inform people, and then you are allowed, like, once that information is in the public domain, the public can take it and try and understand it, and that's what we're trying to do here.
0: That is so poetic and so true. So, the topic that I'm going to be talking about today are is R. Are, are plasmas.
2: I'm glad it's not grammar, that's all.
0: Yeah, (laughs) not an English major. (laughs) For the second time, not an English major. We need a linguist on this podcast. Um, And the reason that I picked plasmas for this week is I was thinking about kind of the research that I do at Queen's and what some cool things are to talk about that. And I think it was also, Beth, in your episode, you kind of were mentioning some things...
2: Mm, I was probably mentioning some things in my episode, yeah. (laughs) Um, Subatomic particles, like electrons, and I don't
0: know. No, maybe it wasn't. Didn't didn't we talk Um, about plasma
1: beams? Yeah.
0: We did. We mentioned plasma beams in your episode, I think. And so that made me think about plasmas and the stuff that I do with plasma. So my first leading question to both of you is, what are plasmas?
1: Can I go first? So in my life, plasma to me means a plasma cleaner, which is something I use to clean glass cover slips on which I'm going to grow cells. And I do this so that it removes all the bacteria, the dust, and it also applies a layer of, presumably does this. I've never tested or seen this happen, but I mean, you can't see this happen. So I don't know how I would show that this happens. But according to theory... Of the way the plasma cleaner works, it applies a layer of like positive charge and coats the top of the glass, and then that makes when I'm coating the glass with something a substrate for the neurons to actually grow on. It makes it much easier for them to grow on. So that's the one definition of plasma that I have. It isn't not a definition anyway. It's just how how plasma is in my life, I guess. <laughs> what does plasma mean to you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Beth. You got, a, you got a definition for us, or a, what plasmas mean to you?
2: Yes, I think that I do. Um, plasmas are... Okay, I don't have a super-duper super scientific definition of what a plasma is, but I have a pseudo-super-duper scientific definition of what a plasma is, and that is that it is like a superheated gas where the electrons on the outside of the atom are separated from the nucleus so you have this whole load of charged particles that are like separate and not combined into nice neutrally uh, electrically neuter- neutral particle groups you have them like flying around everywhere and it's rather confusing
0: yeah that's i mean that is that is the definition so a plasma is an ionized gas, uh, and Beth, you're yes. totally right. It's where the electrons are separated from the their nucleus, um, and they kind of are all floating around in this big like sea with the nucleus, the nuclei floating around in it too. And overall, a plasma is electrically like it's neutral, but uh, the individual atoms are all charged because they've lost one or two electrons. Um, so it's
1: like a salt solution, but in gas form. Made of
0: gases. You can think of it that way. You can you can kind of think of it that way, except the reason that the element has lost its electron is not because of water coming in mm-hmm. and taking it away. It's because, or breaking those bonds, it's because of energy. Very cool. So I think the coolest thing about plasma is that we were all lied to as kids when we were taught that there are three states of matter. You know, solid liquid gas. There's three states of matter, solid liquid gas. Nobody told Mm -hmm. us about plasmas, and I feel robbed. I feel absolutely gutted that I did not learn about plasmas as a kid. You feel robbed.
2: That is it. (laughs) No,
0: Bill, you know, I got a little bit of beef with Bill Nye. Uh, He lied to me. Where are the plasmas, Bill? Where are the plasmas?
2: That's it. I'm going straight to to the Prime Minister and discussing my education.
0: I'm going to write a letter. Yeah. Mr. Bill Nye, the <laughs> science guy. <laughs> Bill, if you're listening, I love you. Um, so it comes from, as most uh, words in science do, with the ancient Greek, plasma, mm. meaning moldable substance, which I think is interesting, because if we're thinking of it like this kind of sea of electrons mm. with the nuclei floating in it, it's moldable and, and formable. Um, and, yeah. It's... A gas that's been ionized, but is neutral. So it, it has these charged species in it, but overall, in the greater like bulk, it is neutral. So I wanna I wanna give you a little history and talk about the discovery of plasmas. Um, are you f- guys familiar with a Crookes tube? Nope.
2: No, okay. I don't think so. So
0: in 1879, um, there was work done on um, cathode rays and x-rays and creating these kinds of wavelengths and um, sir william Crookes actually identified plasmas in these cathode ray tubes experiments um, but he just called it radiant matter mm-hmm.
2: can you can you tell us um for either non-physicists or at least non-physicists under the age of like 25-ish who have never lived with cathode ray tube Mm. screens What actually is a cathode ray
0: um, thanks beth for asking the question we were all thinking (laughs) (laughs) this is a very good point very good point so a cathode ray is a beam of electrons that exist in vacuum tubes and so basically you have a power supply And you have a separated cathode and anode, um, which are the two ends of an electrical circuit, basically. If you think of like a battery, one end is the positive end, one end is the negative end, one is the cathode, one end is the anode. And so you've got these separated, and you apply a very, very high voltage power supply into this vacuum in the tube, in the cathode ray tube. And the electrons will jump from the cathode to the anode. But one of the things is that the electrons give off a glow as they bend around. Sorry, I'm using my hands to demonstrate. But as they bend around to the anode, the cathode and the anode aren't across from each other. They're kind of around the side. And so the electron beam has to bend. And this means that other things, like plasmas and x-rays and other rays, are go straight and are directed towards a screen. And that's how TVs used to work, is they would use a cathode ray, a beam of electrons, to hit um, a special screen called a phosphor screen. And it would light up wherever the electrons hit. And so you could turn on and off the electron beam at certain times and scan and move this beam around on the screen to create an image on the screen. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk on cathode rays. (laughs) This episode is on plasmas.
1: (laughs) That was very interesting. Thank you, Alistair, for clearing up what a cathode ray is. So now where's You're the walking.
0: plasma? Okay, so yeah. when they were, when they were... <laughs>
1: <laughs> we want plasma! We want plasma!
0: <laughs> when they were doing this research into cathode <laughs> rays, they discovered radiant matter, some of this stuff that was coming off of the electron beam. And uh, William Crooks didn't really care about it, didn't really name it, he just called it radiant matter. Um, and then in 1897, Sir J.J. J. Thompson identified this cathode ray matter and kind of talked about it a bit more, but again, it didn't have a name. And then Langmuir came oh. around. Anyone heard of Langmuir? Of oh, the Langmuir isotherm? Okay, he's yeah, he's though. a he's a big name in he's chemistry. Also, just a big name in uh, surface. <laughs> hmm?
1: His name is long.
0: <laughs> it is. It, his, his name, name is, is Irving <laughs> Langmuir. Um, and he worked he worked a lot on plasmas sure. and actually got the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1932 for surface chemistry. So he did a lot of work at like. Uh, solid-liquid boundaries, like what happens right at the interface between a solid and a liquid, or liquid gas, gas-solid, like all that kind of stuff. And so I have a little quote here. It's, it's uh, not lengthy, but... Okay, it's a bit lengthy. But I wanted to read it to you in full because I think it's a really interesting uh, window into how we got the name of plasmas. And the answer might surprise you. So this is from a letter that Harold Mott-Smith wrote to Nature talking about plasmas and and how it was named, because he worked with Langmuir, Um, and he's actually quoting it from a letter that Langmuir wrote in 1967, okay? So, this is Langmuir's words written to Nature by Mott-Smith, pulled (laughs) from the internet by me, in my word, coming out of my voice. So, we struggled to find a name for it. For all members of the team realize that the credit for a discovery goes not to the man who makes it, but to the man who names it. Witness the name of our continent. He was talking about the U.S. We toss around the names like Uniform Discharge, Homogenous Discharge, Equilibrium Discharge, and for the dark or light regions surrounding electrodes, names like auras, halos, and so forth. But one day, Langmuir came in triumphantly and said he had it. He pointed out that the equilibrium part of the discharge acted as a sort of substratum carrying particles of special kinds, like high-velocity electrons from thermoionic filaments, molecules, and ions of gas impurities. This reminds him of the way blood plasma carries around red and white corpuscules and germs, so he proposed to call our uniform discharge a plasma. Of course, we all agreed, but then we were in for it. For a long time, we were pestered by requests from medical journals for reprints of our articles.
1: This happens to me <laughs> to
0: this day. The scientific world of physics and chemistry looked Askins at this uncouth word and, we were, and were slow to accept it in their vocabulary. The engineering world treated it as a General Electric trade name because at the time they were working for General Electric. Then, all of a sudden, long after I had left the laboratory, to my pleasant surprise, everybody started to talk about plasmas. This happened not long before they became thermonuclear, and so government subsidized. That finally put the seal of respectability on plasmas. So I thought that was a good little summary of how it was named. Interestingly, blood plasma was around for a long time. People had well-characterized it and knew about it. And then this physical, you know, forced state of matter came around. And they were kind of like, hey, they're kind of similar. We're going to name them the same thing.
1: I would like to point out that I'm not surprised blood plasmas have been around for a long time because the first blood transfusion recorded was in 1665. So we've known about blood a really long time. Wow.
2: Really? Oh my goodness. That's another conversation to have together because (laughs) I'm really interested. I also don't know what a blood plasma is, but... um...
1: Yeah, I mean, I could explain it, but I'm very basic terms if you want right now, or we can talk about it later.
0: Yeah, explain it. What what is blood plasma? Blood,
1: messy substance, contains a lot of stuff, cells, um, other cells, and also lots, it's mainly water and proteins, soluble, (laughs) soluble ish proteins, Um, fats, sugars, lots of stuff. Okay, so when that's blood as a whole, Uh, when you're doing research, and in other cases, I guess, when you're in medical sciences as well, what you often do is you um, you can fractionate the blood based on density. So you use this sort of uh, reagent that, and spin it with this reagent. And then it separates out into three different layers based on density. And so, yeah, one of those is the plasma layer, which is the high okay. protein but no cells layer because the cells are really, really heavy. And so the red blood cells pellet, To the bottom and are like collected up in this weird bottom phase there's a weird fuzzy interface it's called and it's fuzzy because it contains Mm -hmm. all the white blood cells so the lymphocytes and then yeah the plasma is just what's left it doesn't have actual like it doesn't actually have cells in it if you have separated out your blood but um it does it's high in protein and other particles
0: Mm -hmm. i think according according to this letter it sounds like they just considered it everything that isn't your red yeah. and white blood cells, but carries the red and white blood cells, and germs, which I thought was, yeah, okay, yeah.
2: So it's kind of like the
1: liquid yeah.
0: bit, and everything that's dissolved in the liquid bit, like small molecules and stuff,
1: proteins, lots of proteins. Anyways, okay, back to uh,
0: real plasmas.
1: That, yes. that was a very enjoyable <laughs> digression. Yeah.
0: Yeah, little 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 digression, but hey, that's what this podcast is about. So, as it often goes in science. Um, as Langmuir said, the credit doesn't go to the person that discovered it, but the man that names it. And so once they had a name for this plasma, um, the field of plasma physics was born, Whee! came into existence. Like and so bang. we're going to talk about just like, well, we're going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> this research branched into kind of five different interesting tangents that we're going to talk about. Uh, but the first thing is that once they started to study plasmas, they realized that plasmas are actually the most common state of matter and make up 99% of the matter in the visible universe. Can you think of why this might be?
1: Because the sun is so goddamn big.
0: <laughs> yes, that is so
1: It's thick.
0: <laughs> she
1: We though. see, we're lit up by plasma every day. <laughs>
0: You are one hundred percent correct, Sienna. The sun is a plasma, and therefore every star in the sky is a plasma.
1: Mm-hmm. And except for me, um, I'm a star, not made of plasma. Crazy!
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the exception. Scientists are still trying to figure that one out. Um, and so,
2: and stars are so heavy; like they presumably constitute. A huge amount of the mass in the universe. I'm no astrophysicist though, I have no idea. This is just speculation on my part. There's also so many
1: stars, and they're so big. But yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: so stars are plasmas, and our sun is a star, and it is actually a pretty cold (laughs) star comparatively to other ones, and small. You're
1: telling me we got the lamest Um,
0: star in the universe? (laughs) I'm not saying it's lame. No, love our sun. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, our sun is a star, but it's pretty cold and pretty
0: small.
2: (laughs) Poor sun. That's so rude. (laughs) Thank you, sun. We owe you our lives.
0: 10 10 to the 3 or 10 to the 4 Kelvin is around the temperatures that stars get to. So that's, you know, 1,000 to 10,000 Kelvin. And because... It's pretty warm. It is, but actually... like. In <laughs> universal astrophysics terms, it's kind of cold because, because why I'm talking about the temperature of stars and how they're kind of like cold is they radiate visible light. So at this temperature, because of the the temperature that this plasma is burning at, plasmas don't burn, but I'm going to use that terminology. It's not like a flame. It doesn't burn, but okay. I'm going to say burn because I think-
1: We can it... all picture what burning means. So I think that's probably a good call.
0: Yes. Yes. Little, little side note for those that are going to read yeah, me for saying yeah. burning. Burning is an oxidative process where oxygen is used to create carbon dioxide and water vapor. That doesn't. That's not what happens in the sun. That's not what happens in a plasma. But we say that plasmas burn because it, it looks like fire sometimes. End asterisk. So these plasmas are burning at high temperatures, 1,000 to 10,000 degrees Kelvin, um, and radiating visible wavelengths. But there are... There is a class of matter in the universe that burns much hotter. 10 to the 5 to 10 to the 7. And this is actually most of the baryonic matter in the universe. Beth, can you tell us what baryonic matter is?
2: I've got a hint from the beginning of this episode, where Sienna was talking about the Big Bang. Is this a quark gluon gl- gl- plasma?
0: Oh, no, it's not the quark. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the quark glue on plasma.
2: Oh, I lost. I let myself down. What I
0: So what I'm talking about right now, saying that plasmas make up 99% of the matter in the universe, is something called the warm, hot, intergalactic medium.
1: Like, there's all sorts of mediums we use to grow cells. <laughs> and I can picture somebody <laughs> using that one, like... Oh yeah, I'm just incubating my humans on their little planet in the warm-hot intergalactic medium for a few million years.
0: But this is really interesting because um, when I was looking at the warm-hot intergalactic medium, which actually burns at 10 to the 5 to 10 to the 7 Kelvin... And and it it burns so hot that it emits x-rays. So we can't see them with our eyes, but we can see them with telescopes. This is the space in between our galaxies. And when you look at a a computer rendering of, you know, our galaxies and the warm, hot intergalactic medium between them, it looks kind of like neurons. It's like the galaxies are the little nodules and then there's these strands of warm hot intergalactic oh. medium between them. I was almost gonna go down this tangent about how maybe we're living in a giant cell culture, but I thought that was a little bit too like <laughs> I believe it. Tinfoil hat like wavy. But but you mentioned that and that's that's something that I think is really an interesting thought, is that we're just living on a cell culture for some like larger being it's experiment. This is very
2: <laughs> Douglas Adams. This is very Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, I have I have a comment and a question slash ponderance because I don't know if you have looked into this specific thing enough to like answer my question. So the comment is like, can we just take a second Mm -hmm. to review Physicists again, like warm, hot <laughs> intergalactic. Like what, what kind of a name is that? Is it warm or is it hot? Well, like, they couldn't call it the
1: stringy matter because
0: that would cause too ten much Ten to confusion. the five to ten to the seven Kelvin. So they
1: had to call it the warm, hot matter. <laughs> so they had to. The only
2: possible name available to them was the warm, hot. They couldn't even call it semi-hot. Plasma. Like, I don't know. Yeah, they couldn't. It had to be warm, hot, Hottish, but like not too hot, but only like warm, but not too warm. I don't want you to think that it's not hot enough. So I'm going to put hot on the end of warm, just so that we're all clear that it's kind of warm, but it's also kind of hot. I don't know. Physicists are the worst.
0: Yeah. I know. It, I We're going to, there's a number of different things in this episode uh, where physicists kind of just name things. Interestingly, so we'll get to some other ones. I kept them in because I thought Beth, you would get a kick out of them, and that was one of them: the warm, hot intergalactic. The media. first
1: sunny day of spring. Intergalactic matter. That's the kind of thing <laughs> that physicists would say. <laughs> Although I, I
0: like the idea, Beth. We should petition to rename it the warmish intergalactic matter. <laughs> I like hot-ish. I liked, I liked I'll be the, honest. the hotish. I like the hottish, The hotish. Yeah.
2: Okay. Then my then my question, um, is. Like, in how can it be so hot? Okay, in the sun, like you've got all of this pressure that's pushing on the mm-hmm. on the gases, right? And uh, the ideal gas law tells you that if you increase, increase the pressure, then you increase the temperature, right? PV equals nRT. Mm-hmm. And yep. in in the intergalactic space, I'm like as far as I know, like there's this huge amount of space and not very much in it, so there can't be a very high pressure, so how can it be so hot to make it like 10 to the 7 Kelvin and create a plasma?
0: So this is, it's an interesting question, and you're totally right that the pressure isn't very high, because the density of the warm-hot intergalactic medium is very low. Like. Super, 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 super low. Um, I don't sure. have a number Super, super, super is down, good but it's like good orders of 10 yeah. to the negative 30, I think. The
1: super,
2: super, super TBM. low like density it's, it's... intergalactic
0: medium. So... <laughs> <laughs> don't
2: give them ideas, Sienna. <laughs> um,
0: why it is so okay. hot, I just, I don't know. I think it might have something to do with the Big Bang, like be. the residual energy from that and we'll get to the quark gluon plasma cuz I, like I did this. do a lot of research into that um but yeah, I don't know why it's so hot. NASA, yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, please write to us. Love to take a tour. So, um this was something that was discovered once they started looking into plasma physics that you know, the most abundant matter in our universe is our plasmas. Um but it branched into five different um sections. And so I'm going to talk about each of them. The first one is we learned about the ionosphere. Now, are either of you familiar with the ionosphere? I mean,
1: I've heard of it, the word, but I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Beth, can
0: you
2: tell Um, me what it is? uh, It's a section of the atmosphere, right? Where Mm -hmm. everything is ionized because of cosmic rays, I think.
1: That sounds awful.
0: (laughs) So it's, it's a part, part of our atmosphere that's partially ionized. (laughs)
1: that's a dangerous part to be in yes yeah it's uh (laughs) don't go there for a vacation
0: no an interesting phenomenon that occurs with the ionosphere is it reflects radio signals and radio waves and it's what allows us to transmit radio waves over the horizon because if you think Mm. about it how do radio waves bend with the curvature of the earth you know you send a radio wave out in a direction it's going to go in that direction until it's acted on by something else and the ionosphere bounces, basically you bounce it off the ionosphere and then down to your tower.
2: That's so cool! That's so cool Mm -hmm. that you can, like, be that precise. You've got all of this atmosphere in the way, but you know that, like, if you send it in this direction, enough of it will reach, like, the particles in the ionosphere to then get... That's so cool.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So it does... I was reading, and it does distort the signal sometimes, and you can get what's called ghost signals, where like the signal doesn't arrive all at the same time and stuff, but I thought it was just cool that, yeah, how did we, when we were developing radio, how did we send stuff across the Earth yeah. when it's curved? Flat Earth,
1: write to us, <laughs> tell us
0: why we're wrong, but I believe the Earth is curved. I don't really think it's a belief, it's a fact, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> so, the ionosphere, a plasma. The ionosphere is a plasma. The next, thing, uh, the next branch was magnetohydrodynamics, Ooh. or MHD. Now, MHD is uh, where we can treat plasmas as a conducting fluid, and that's where we get a lot of our research on sunspots and solar flares and star formation and other astrophysics things. Um, this was mainly pioneered by Hannes Alphen in 1940. He developed the concept of magnetohydrodynamics, and basically it's how we can characterize plasmas and talk about sun flares and stuff. Nice. The next cool branch of plasma physics that emerged was controlled thermonuclear fusion.
2: Uh-huh. Ooh, I know about Do you. this. You wanna talk about it? A bit. Okay. Um well, I don't really know what to say, but I did a project on um the jet fusion reactor when I was at school, which is um, in a village very close to to where I grew up. Now I have a friend who um, works for the European Commission, um, like dealing with stuff for the ITER project, for the ITER experiment in France. Um, And they are both um, like tokamaks, which means donut shaped fusion reactors and so what they do is they get like loads and loads of hydrogen and they heat it really, really high, and then it becomes a plasma. And then I don't know, they I don't know, I can't remember what they do. I think they inject more hydrogen afterwards or something, I can't remember, and then like eventually it fuses into helium and then you get energy out. And nobody yet has managed to get more energy out than they put in. But they're hoping to ether is hoping to to break through and be energy efficient, and then we could get rid of fossil fuels and live in a nice, clean, happy world. So
0: they're doing they're doing the good, uh, nuclear <laughs> yeah, the good
2: the good nuclear because, physics. It's the good. It's the it's the clean nuclear. Yes, physics.
0: because the other side, which is the stuff that I was looking into, is the developing yeah. of the hydrogen bomb.
1: Figured that ah. was coming.
0: Yeah, interest. So interestingly, in the '40s and '50s. Um, a lot of classified research by the United States, the Soviet Union, and Great Britain were done on thermonuclear fusion and controlling, you know, this reaction and, and what and fusion.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. And a lot of this research was done to develop the hydrogen bomb. And then it was declassified in 1958. So there was a huge explosion of papers in the 50s and 60s. Wait,
2: do you want to rephrase that?
0: What? Oh, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. There was a huge explosion of papers, no pun intended, in the 50s and 60s as people could publish this work on uh, controlling these fusion reactions. And as you said, they use a plasma. Um, and they were looking for how... I th- how I read it was after um, the reaction. There's a thermonuclear plasma that is produced. And uh, they wanted to see how they could trap it in a magnetic field and how the instabilities within the plasma let it escape from the magnetic field and stuff. Because plasmas, because they're the sea of electrons, they respond to magnetic fields. Um, so that's the third section, the third branch of plasma physics is thermonuclear fusion. The fourth is space plasma physics. I like this um, one already. Unfortunately, I don't have much about this. It's just really exploring the Earth's magnetosphere with satellites, using all of the previous topics that we've talked about, using all of those to combine to talk about how solar flares afla- affect the ionosphere. And, and it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, space plasma physics, plasmas are all around in space. Yeah. Yeah, um, but.
2: Probably really important, too. Like, I don't really know much about it, but, like, the whole if a solar, like, if a big solar flare came our way and, like, took out all of our satellites and everything and our power systems and, like, the entire world and we'd all die.
0: Yeah. Um, it's kind of bleak, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, This is what I meant off the top, where I said we take hundreds of years of research and, like, very intense, involved scientific fields and reduce it to an hour podcast. Because um, yeah. I'm sure, like, space plasma <laughs> physics... There are probably some people that are super psyched to talk about that. And if you'd love to come on this podcast, send an email to phd32b at gmail.com. The final branch is laser plasma physics.
2: Oh, yeah. I know about this, too. I don't really. Well, I'm I'm sorry. I'm interrupting. I'm like stealing your whole podcast. No, you're not. No, you're
0: not. Because I figured you might have something to say about laser plasma physics. So laser plasmas are a little bit different than ordinary plasmas. Um, because they're produced from a laser pulse so you fire a laser at a solid surface and it creates a tiny little plasma at this laser um, or like gas gas surface interface these plasmas have very extreme properties they have very high densities almost like solids and so there's research into them because um, fusion reactions also have very high densities right you're, you're compressing things very very dense Um So there's research in there. But also, strong electric fields are generated when a laser pulse passes through a plasma. So you shoot a laser through a plasma, and there's very strong electric fields that develop. This can be used, drumroll (laughs) please, to accelerate particles, which would bring down the cost and scale of particle accelerators. Ooh,
2: yeah. Um, can I, can I say something about this? Yes,
0: I have a little blurb about the science behind it, but you go ahead.
2: Okay, I'm probably not going to talk much about the science behind it because you'll probably do a better job. But I was just going to say, I went to see one last summer, like, um, at the lab where I work. There's, like, loads of different experiments of various different kinds. And one of the guys in my experiment went to uni with somebody who now works at the labs on a different experiment and he like got in contact and was like will you show us around and that's exactly what they're doing it's like a laser driven it was really cool it was a really really cool like i suddenly understood a lot that i never understood before i went to see that experiment
0: yeah it, it coming across this i was really excited because um i've had the privilege of visiting cern and seeing their massive facility um yeah And, you know, it's this huge ring that goes all the way around and it accelerates these particles. And they talk about why it needs to be so big. And that's because you've got to get the particles going really fast. And so the idea that using plasmas and using lasers, we can bring down the cost and scale. I mean, um, so I did some research into this. And ordinarily what's used, so uh, this is from the Berkeley Lab Laser Accelerator or BELLA Center in Berkeley. At Berkeley and California, yeah, right? In California. And they say that um, radio frequency accelerators use accelerating structures, these resonant magnetic cavities in which radio frequency power sets up electric fields that impart velocity to charged particles. The large particle accelerator's analog to those accelerating structures is created when the radiation pressure of an intense laser pulse displaces electrons in a plasma channel, initiating plasma oscillations and resulting in a wake consisting of successive, alternating positively and negatively charged regions behind the laser. This is analogous to the wake of a boat, which can carry a surfer. Trust those Californians to talk about surfers. <laughs> <laughs> An electron beam located at the appropriate phase behind a laser will be focused transversely and also accelerated longitudinally to or decelerated from high energies over a very short distance. So I loved this I loved this because they talk about using lasers in a very uh, interesting way, like both. So basically, the laser's flying through the plasma, creating these waves, and if you get your particle on the right wave, it'll go along with the laser.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I thought that was really Good cool. stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And they, they, showed, they had an image of like an old um, radio frequency accelerator with the big magnets from, I don't know, the 30s, 40s? Not quite sure when it was from, but it, black and white photo, big magnet thing and then what sure. they use today the little kind of like same thing same idea yeah. and then a little handheld one a guy's holding this thing in his hand and
2: oh my gosh. It
0: basically you know it, it really significantly they're bringing down the scale to
2: that's really cool but also um if i can be a particle physicist about mm. the second half of what you mm-hmm. said you said that it would focus tra- transversely and accelerate longitudinally mm-hmm. the particle and this is like the dream so focusing tangentially means that um you're like st- so like you've got your i'm using my hands a lot and this is a podcast you've got you've got your beam of particles that's traveling in a certain direction and what you want is to make them go faster in that direction but you don't want to make them go in different directions. So if they're slightly going in different directions, you don't want to like just make them go faster in that direction because then they'll immediately be outside of the of your system of like containing them, like your beam pipe essentially, your like water pipe. You can think of it as water coming through. And if it's like going, if it's splashing out at all angles at the end, you want to like refocus it and make it go nice and straight so that it will blow nice and smoothly through the through your pipe so you like the the dream is to give it a lot of momentum but only in the one direction and so if it can accelerate it longitudinally that is accelerate it in the direction that you want it to go and focus it tangentially so stop it from going in any other direction that's that's, that's what that's what you need it that's sounds like i'm um, yeah. switching
1: a hose from like spray mode to jet mode yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: That's what it is. That's exactly
0: what it is. Yeah. So... This is cool stuff. Those are the five different branches of particle physics. There are or, Sorry, not particle <laughs> physics. Whoa, that's not my topic. Whoa,
2: whoa. That, that would be a different podcast. Uh,
0: plasma physics. So those are the five different kind of regions of plasma physics. But there are many other things that you can do with plasmas. Um, we will get to some of the fun ones near the end. But I wanted to talk about myself for a quick minute. <laughs>
2: Of course you did
0: And I wanted to explain to you what I do with plasmas And why I thought of this episode And why I thought it would be a good um, idea So um, in my lab at Queen's Not my lab In the lab that I work in at Queen's um, (laughs) We do research using inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry As well as inductively coupled plasma optical emission spectroscopy And... So its abbreviation is ICPMS, Inductively Coupled Plasma Mass Spectrometry, and it's a very sensitive analysis technique that allows us to see what elements make up samples. So if you want to see how much lead is in drinking water or how much of a pesticide is in a food product, you can use Inductively Coupled Plasma Mass Spectrometry to see that and see a very accurate and precise value of the element. Um, we're going to leave the mass spectrometry element to another day because it's a whole topic unto itself. Um, but because we're talking about plasmas, I thought we would talk about the inductively coupled plasma part because I think that's the coolest sounding part of the, the instrument. Do you
2: want to just give one sentence
0: of what a mass spectrometer does? Sure. So a mass spectrometer takes ions, so charged atoms, and detects them. Very simply, it allows us to see the number of those atoms in a sample. But they have to be ions.
2: And it also...
0: Oh, and it discriminates them, so it... it, it uh, Yeah, discriminates it separates them, them. Separates them. Separates by them by their mass-to-charge ratio, which is a fancy term to say by their weight. Yeah, by their mass. So every element on the periodic table has a different mass... Uh, in fact, some elements have multiple different masses. Those are called isotopes, and we can detect almost every single isotope on the periodic table, which is pretty cool. I want not
2: know about the ones we can't detect, but we'll leave that
0: for another time. Well, we'll actually we'll talk about a couple of them that we can't detect right off the bat because we can't detect them in ICPMS because the plasma doesn't ionize them. So they are not made available to be seen by the mass spectrometer. Hmm. So why is that is? Well, why is that is? Wow, I just said Why that.
1: is that is the way it is that it is? <laughs> <laughs> not yet a doctor. Take the podcast two. where we talk about why it is that it is the way that it is.
0: So why is the plasma the way that it is? Is what the sentence I was trying to say. Why can't we see some elements just because of the plasma? That is because the plasma is an argon plasma. So argon is a neutral noble gas and we use it as a plasma in our inductively coupled plasma. And uh, why my question to you guys is why would we use argon?
2: You must have told me this when I mean, saw. Right. Maybe we've
0: talked about it. It's maybe not.
2: Can I can I can I give some
0: guesses? Okay. Sure. I'll give you some hints first, maybe. Um, Please so, do. so we use the argon plasma to atomize and ionize the samples, okay. right? We're, we're, creating, we're creating ions. If you think to the periodic table, there are certain periodic trends, right? We all learned yeah. about those in first-year chemistry, the different periodic trends of the table. What periodic trend would be useful when we're talking about an ionized gas?
2: I guess that it isn't found as a compound, so that you know exactly what's in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, like, so you're not, yeah, like, you
0: want something that can be purified, something a pure gas? pure, yeah.
2: yeah. And then...
0: So what are some of the... Do you remember any of the periodic trends of the table, the way that the table's laid out? I mean, yeah, but...
2: <laughs> yeah, so what's...
0: What's up in the top left of Unstable the periodic things. table? Those have very... Well,
1: things that ionize very
0: easily.
2: Those have, okay, okay.
1: Yeah,
0: well, no, Yeah, actually, it's
1: the opposite, They
2: have but... <laughs> an extra electron that they want to get rid of. They're like, fur- they're like desperately trying to- Yeah, I really don't want They're it. like, please take this away from me. It's too much, I can't cope. Like, <laughs> I can't deal with this electron right now.
1: I always thought of those ones as the unlucky ones because they are so close to being perfect, noble
0: gases, but <laughs> they're not. If we go to the right-hand side of the periodic table,
2: so now you've got your noble gases and they have yeah and they have a they're really they're like so lucky they're like do you know what mate i don't need anything more in my life i'm like quite happy to just chill out like this don't Mm -hmm. come and bother me i am the perfect
1: adam all on my own i don't need your help
2: yeah and they're like great at quarantine and so (laughs) and (laughs) so Because they have an outer shell. They have they're a satisfied. full outer shell of electrons.
1: They don't need any more electrons. They're like, they've made it. They ate the perfect amount of food and they're full. The other guys, they ate too much yeah. and now they feel a right. bit sick. Yeah.
0: And so, what does that mean for their ionization energy? If the ones on the left hand side of the periodic table are very easily ionizable,
2: that is really yes. high. It's really high because, like, they're so happy with how they are. If you even come close to them and start threatening to take off one of their electrons, they're like, don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't come close to me. I don't want to hear it. So you have to put in a lot of work to get any of those electrons out.
1: So now I'm kind of feeling bad for argon that you ionize it, actually.
2: Yeah, it was so happy before.
0: (laughs) What happens when we ionize argon?
1: Ooh.
2: Um, then it's like, I really want to find that electron again. Give me back that electron right now. I need And where
0: does it take it from?
2: Everywhere else.
1: (laughs) Everyone
0: else.
2: Yeah. It's like surrounded by all of these... Uh, um, electrons, and it's like, I don't care if it was the one that I had before, I just want an electron, it can be any electron, just one electron,
1: any one. Sorry, electron. oxygen, I'm taking your electron, sorry, lead,
0: <laughs> this yeah. now belong to me. Exactly, Sienna, so if we, we if a little lead is floating, floating through this ionized argon, it's going to, the argon is going to take that electron, the lead is then going to go, so greedy. Oh, oops, lost an electron, I'm an ion now, and I can be seen by the mass spectrometer. Yeah. Ah. So the reason that we, we got there in the end, whew, that was a whole personification <laughs> of the entire periodic table,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but the reason that we use argon is it has a very high ionization energy. It's very, very difficult, mm-hmm. but not impossible, to ionize argon. And when we ionize argon, it can ionize almost every other element on the periodic table. Mm-hmm. Now, I say almost because there are some elements that have higher ionization energy than argon. Beth.
1: No, me first.
0: Or did you say me first, Sienna?
1: No, Sienna go first. No, yeah, she did. No, it's okay. No, Sienna go first. I mean, I think I probably I probably have the same guess as Beth, which is, are there noble gases?
2: Yeah. Which ones? The ones higher. So, yeah. helium. Mm-hmm. Helium. Xenon. Where is xenon? I don't know Xenon's really where argon is. Okay. I okay. think I can't picture argon on the table. neon, mm-hmm. neon, helium and neon. I think that's it.
0: There's another. Yep. Yeah, and there's another element though that's not a noble gas.
2: <gasps> Ooh. Um. No, I don't know.
0: Fluorine. Fluorine has a very very high ionization yeah. energy, and that makes sense, too. Is yeah. not... We say it's not sufficiently ionized in an argon plasma. So it's... it's, mm-hmm.
1: Which means what? Because it's it's almost... It's practically argon, but, ha- like... It's practically an argon ion. Except I neon, think it's higher neon up. ion. Right? Like, it's yeah. a neon yeah. ion. Yeah. yeah. Where it's just... It so desperately wants to steal an electron. Yeah. 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 So Sorry, Florine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so that's why we use argon... Is it's a very high ionization energy and will then ionize all the other elements on the periodic table, almost all the other elements. Mm -hmm. And the way that it works in ICP MS is argon is fed into a specially designed torch, which is just basically a set of tubes, quartz tubes, um, and it's quartz so that it doesn't melt at the high temperatures. And the initial ionization of this argon happens with a Tesla coil spark. So, a little spark goes into the tube. You're flowing argon in. It ionizes a little bit of the argon. And then that produces the plasma. And the plasma is held in place by a set of coils um, radio frequency coils. So, we said earlier that um, plasmas are affected by electromagnetic radiation. And so, um, when we have radio frequency coils, they hold the plasma. In place, and wow, keep it in the that's torch. That's incredible. Physics always
1: shocks me with the stuff that like can happen.
0: It shocks you,
1: uh, like a spark from a Tesla coil. No pun intended, but I guess pun present.
2: That was pun awful. present, but not intended. <laughs> yeah. Physics is cool, right? Like, I know I'm biased, but I cool still but think scary. That cool.
0: The, and so the neat, yeah. The yeah, the cool thing right. about this physics is. If you think of the torch as like a cylinder, the plasma comes out one end of that cylinder. And it's held in place by coils that wrap around the cylinder like you would have a ring on a finger. Like, they wrap around like that. And if you remember the left-hand rule of physics, if you have uh, a current going through the coil in a certain direction. So if it's it's following the loop of that coil, if you stick your thumb in that direction, your hand curls in the direction that the uh, magnetic field goes. Beth is, like, shaking her head wildly, trying to remember the left-hand rule. No,
2: I'm nodding at you. I'm nodding at you, like, yes, that's true. And, like, I'm also like, oh, my God, I hate electromagnetism.
0: So what this means, like, if you if you take your finger and you put a ring on it, the, the ring is like the coil, <laughs> and your nail is like the plasma. And then if you look down, if you look at your finger straight on, so you're looking at it up and down, um, the electrons are flowing out of the torch and then around the outside and then back in. In this kind of loop. And this means, because the electrons are doing this flow, that they go out, around, and back in, and they hit unionized argon. And when they hit the unionized argon, that argon loses an electron, and it becomes ionized and continues to generate the plasma. So our plasma stays in position and stays alight, Because there is a continuous flow of argon and it's continuously being bombarded by these electrons that are flowing around because of the coils. It's a very complicated system, but I think it's really cool that we can sustain essentially like a mini sun in the lab. Just keep it hovering there. The plasma in an ICP-MS is not as hot as the sun. It's almost as hot as the sun. It reaches temperatures of about 3,000 to 10,000 degrees Kelvin. Actually, that's pretty much the temperature of the sun. So the surface of the sun at least. Um, and so that can break down molecules um, and turn everything into atoms and then ionize them and turn them into ions. And as we said earlier, that makes it available to look into a mass spectrometer. Or we can see it with a mass spectrometer. So, yeah, that's ICPMS. Uh, but now I wanted to get to some cool things that you can do with plasmas that I don't do anything with, but um, maybe people are familiar with and I did a little bit of research on. So the first one, Beth, you mentioned at the top of the episode, the quark gluon plasma. Whee! Do you want to do you want to give a explanation to what that is?
2: Um, I hate the Big Bang Theory, the TV program. Um, as <laughs> as you opinion. should, Whoa. as you should. Thank you, Sienna. Um, but it is true that the whole universe began as a hot, dense state. Um, what was, it, what was the the fourteen million that, years ago? The, the whole universe was in a hot, dense state. Is that what it is? Yes. 14 million years ago the universe was anyway
1: whatever it is.
0: And then 14 million years ago expansion started. Wait.
1: Ah, oh, that's what it is. Um, uh,
0: Bare naked ladies. They're I hope good.
1: nobody comes after us with a copyright. <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: like Yeah, copyrights right for reading the lyrics to the song. <laughs> yeah, but we've really badly where it comes from.
2: <laughs> yeah, really really badly. Um, it is true that the universe was in a hot dense state. And you cannot sue me for that because that is everywhere. And okay, so you get the big Bang and it spits out loads of particles and everything is so like there's so much energy and it's so dense there's so there's such a high energy energy density that the um that basically it's too hot for even nuclei to form so like you get so a normal plasma is when an atom dissociates right a gluon mm-hmm. plasma is when the literally the insides of a proton dissociate like the, like a proton isn't one defined particle anymore it's like all of the parts of a proton are like everywhere and kind of interconnected and like in this soup of of particles is that a good mm-hmm. explanation
0: yeah, exactly. And and so um, something I came across in researching the quark-gluon plasma, because I thought quarks and gluons, that sounds like stuff that Beth does, so I'm going to talk about it. Um, it's this kind of soup that you said that um, existed right after the Big Bang. Um, and the plasma in quark-gluon plasma means that free color changes are allowed. And... I read this, and I was like, free color changes, what does that mean? Like, there was color changing? So, Beth, I'm wondering, are you familiar with what color changing of quarks and gluons are?
2: Um, I'm hoping that you have an explanation, because I can hazard a guess.
0: Okay, I, I do have an explanation. Okay. It's a very simplified explanation, but basically, the color change of quarks and gluons is completely unrelated to the everyday meaning of color. Yes. The term color, and then they label different colors, red, green, and blue, is just a popular term in physics for the changing between different types of quarks. So like
1: like the flavor of neutrinos.
0: Exactly, except neutrinos are a different subset of subatomic particles. We're talking about quarks and gluons, but it's the same idea. It's the change between different quarks from one to another. Those are different color Um, changes. If
2: I can give a quick explanation of what colors are. Any um, detectable object, basically, has to have... It has to be color neutral, so it has to have an equal balance of red, green, and blue. So you can have a red and an anti-red, or you can have a blue and an anti-blue, or you can have one red, one green, one blue, and all of those, like, that will make up something that you can then detect. That's a simple explanation of
1: what color is. So when are we going to get particles... with a scent since we have flavor well, and do color you know i think we got to move on to scent
2: do you know what okay here's a here's a big reveal um <laughs> my my dad is also a particle physicist and my mum gave him the challenge many many years ago to find a particle and when he found the particle he should name it the noson. So ever since then, it has been the it has been the object of the long family scientists to find the noson.
1: And the noson will have different scents associated with them. I can't wait. I can't wait.
2: <gasps> yeah, of course uh, it will. Yeah, okay, great.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I love this.
2: So color changing is where they're just allowed to, like, morph between different color states.
0: Mm-hmm. It, so That's in the so cork, weird. gluon, plasma, free color changes are allowed. They can just swap colors
2: that's so weird i have to look into Mm -hmm. that
0: so that's one cool thing about a cool application of plasmas or the word plasma really um another one that i think you're probably both very familiar with is the plasma globe did you ever have one of those or play with them as a kid oh yeah 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 yeah.
1: the thing and you put your hands on it and this is what we're talking about right yeah 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 and it sends electrical looking like yeah, lightning yeah, strikes to your yeah. hands and you're like ah! but it can't hurt you because it's contained
0: that's a hundred yes yes but it, so, it
1: it wants to hurt you
0: it does <laughs> it, and... it wants
1: to hurt you but all it can do is see you and like try and poke at you through the glass but it's contained And you uh-huh. have yeah, so and much there's problem. some
0: yes. very high frequency energy being put through that globe that is going through your hand but it's really interesting but it's, it's so a really fun. interesting concept <laughs> So it's a globe, as you've described, that is filled with um, noble gases. uh, And different globes have different mixtures. It's got neon, argon, xenon, krypton, and that makes it different colors. Um, And then in the center, there's this electrode um, that has high frequency alternating current coming out of it. And depending on the the power, it creates either one little tendril towards the glass or multiple. And the reason that that happens is the buildup of current creates a plasma at the surface of the electrode. And then that current wants to go somewhere, wants to be released and and dissipated. So it goes to the glass on the outside of the globe to dissipate the current. Um, and it has to do that through the plasma. So it creates a plasma, a little plasma wiggle (laughs) to get there. That's so cute. When you, yeah. And this is, this is a a phenomenon known as, uh, electric glow discharge. Uh Um, and so when you put your hand on the globe, the discharge concentrates at your hand because the human body is more conductive mm-hmm. than the glass or the gas that's so within true. the globe. We are very conductive. Or the surrounding air. Or the air, yeah. Yeah. So it goes through the path of mm-hmm. least resistance. And so that's why when you put your hand on, all these spiky tendrils come towards you, but your body is able to absorb that electric charge. The next few examples of plasmas I have are <laughs> auroras. So I'm sure... You may have seen or pictures of the Aurora Borealis. I
2: have an aurora story. Okay. I don't know if it's interesting enough for the podcast, Mm -hmm. but um, when I went to see you at Christmas, Alistair in Nottingham, then I went um, Mm -hmm. off to see my sister in York for a couple of days, and then we were coming home on Christmas Eve, back down south to Didcot, and the train was like super packed, but there was like this one seat available with this group of guys, (laughs) and there were these two guys who must have been, like, in their 40s or something, and then their father-in-law, who must have been, like, in his 70s or 80s or whatever. Anyway, so, like, I was working on the train, and then they were, like, having banter because it was Christmas Eve, and um, eventually we got to talking, and they were like, Oh, you're a physicist. Tell us what an interesting physics fact. And I was like, Oh, God. (laughs) Physics is not an interesting... Like, (laughs) how do you just tell someone an (laughs) interesting... So the fact that I pulled out um, was that if... So the Aurora Borealis... I'm sorry if I'm stealing your thunder, Alistair. Is um, basically what happens is you get charged particles from space, cosmic rays. And the Earth has a magnetic field, which is lucky. Because what that does is it deflects the the charged particles so basically they enter the atmosphere they get deflected around the round the poles and then they get deflected off out into space again and that's good because if we got loads more charged particles I mean some of them come to hit you anyway which is like you evolved to cope with that but if we had loads more if we had if we had no um protection against cosmic rays then they would potentially ionize the whole atmosphere and we'd have no air left to breathe. So it's just really lucky that we have auroras. That's what I'm trying to say. But
1: think about how beautiful it would be in that split second yeah. when it ionizes the whole atmosphere. One big aurora. Yeah, like you
2: die in a really beautiful way. <laughs> like I'm not sure how much of it you'd live to appreciate, but yes, that's that's fair.
0: So That's exactly all I was going to say about auroras, is is they're super cool, and it's because of cosmic rays. Um, So, Aurora Borealis is a plasma. Another natural phenomenon that's a plasma is lightning, because the electrical discharge travels to the ground through ionized air, which is a plasma. Um, So that's why it's so bright, that's why lightning is a huge flash, is because it's this plasma. So, ding, 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 play the Jeopardy theme, it's quiz time
1: this <laughs> oh, time I love this is my favorite time of the podcast.
0: So these are these are short answer questions. Play along at home if you're listening and you've made it all the way to the end of this podcast. First question, who named the plasma and what did he name it after? Yes, Sienna.
1: Langmuir?
0: Yes. It was Lang Irving Langmuir.
1: Irving Langmuir. He named it after blood plasma.
0: He did. Ding 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 ding. Do you have anything to add, Beth?
2: Um that Plasma in Greek means something that's moldable, right? That is
0: correct, yes. There you go.
2: That's all I've got to add.
0: All right, question two. Describe one branch of plasma physics. We talked about five. Yes, Beth.
2: There's nuclear physics. I can't remember exactly what you called it.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Where they use plasma to start a fusion reaction.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Either for... Energy generating purposes, or for nefarious war purposes. Yes. Okay. Um, I have more, yeah. but I think Sienna should, should take it. Oh, no. Turn.
1: Sienna,
0: do you have a, a branch of plasma physics?
1: Uh, interstellar magical science space plasma.
0: Yes, you got there in the end. Space plasma physics.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of the whim, but space plasma wasn't really about that. But
0: uh, they're kind of related. What, what was the whim?
1: I don't remember. I just think of it as the wind. The one that isn't cold? Yeah, no, I know the name of it, the warm hot interstellar matter, but I didn't think that was a whole yeah. field of plasma. I think I thought that was a part of the field.
0: Yeah, we kind of we talked about that um talking about how uh, plasma is the most abundant right. State of matter in the universe yeah. And I think that would fall into Space Plasma physics Well there you
1: go, Space Plasma so, was my favorite brand of plasma There you go
0: um, I, yeah, the...
1: I like that brand of plasma too I only buy Space Plasma for my plasma purposes Space Plasma The plasma that will suit you
0: <laughs> We should get a sponsored revenue from that uh, Yeah So the five branches are, we talked about the ionosphere and studies into the ionosphere of the Earth, Mm -hmm. magnetohydrodynamics, or MHD, which is treating a plasma like a fluid, controlled thermonuclear fusion, which Beth, you talked about, Uh, space plasma physics, which is Sienna's favorite, (laughs) and laser plasma physics. So those are the five uh, branches of plasma physics that we talked about. Final question for all of the monies. What does ICP stand for? Beth?
2: Um, ICP stands for inductively coupled plasma.
0: That is correct. And for a bonus point, Sienna, can you say the full name of the instrumental technique that I use?
1: Inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry.
0: Oh, Correct. You both win points. You guys are fantastic. All of the money. All of the monies.
1: (laughs) I, I expect my check in the mail by tomorrow. (laughs) Yes.
0: That's uh, that's quite a big ask.
2: I will give you until Monday because it has to come across the Atlantic.
0: All right. I'd just like to go over a couple of the sources that I got some of this information from. Um, The Greek-English lexicon by Henry George Little and Robert Scott helped me with uh, what plasma means. I got some information from the New World Encyclopedia as well as Wikipedia, always with a heart. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, the History of Plasmas was published in Nature in 1971 by Harold Mott-Smith. That was the What Are Plasmas? Um, A Brief History of Plasma Physics by Richard Fitzpat- oh, Fitzpatrick at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, the Berkeley Laser Lab Accelerator or Bella Center. Uh, and Volume 5 of the Encyclopedia of Mass Spectrometry, which is edited by Diane Boschman and Dwight E. Matthews. Series editors Michael Gross and Richard Caprioli. I'd like to thank our listeners for listening. I am Alistair. I am
2: Sienna. I am Beth.
0: We are the PhD three, and we'd like to thank Ellison for this fantastic outro music. Go check him out on Bandcamp. Thanks for listening, and we will be in your ears again soon.